0: Welcome to Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring talks and ideas from the Sydney Opera House. I'm your host, Frank Newman, Creative Learning Specialist. This episode is part of a three-part podcast series featuring conversations curated by influential Finnish educator Parsi Salberg. Professor Pasi Salberg is an educator and author. He has worked as a school teacher, teacher educator, researcher and policymaker advising schools and education system leaders including the World Bank, Finland's Ministry of Education and Culture and Harvard University. He is the recipient of numerous prestigious awards and his many publications inspire teachers and education system leaders around the world. Now the Professor of Education Policy at Southern Cross University, Parsi has a particular interest in the role of play in education and increasingly wants to reframe how we understand health, play and creativity in learning. In this, the first of three episodes, Parsi Salberg, a trained math teacher himself, has invited the infectiously effervescent Eddie Wu and inspirational Professor Nalani Joshi from University of Sydney to discuss what makes mathematics beautiful and at the same time essential for Australian modern life. This event was recorded live in the Jutsun Room as part of a series of conversations in partnership with the University of New South Wales Gonski Institute that took place in 2021.
1: All right. Good evening, everyone. Wonderful to see uh, live people (laughs) for such a long time here. Thank you so much for coming and joining us. This is the first uh, part of the series of three conversations. We call them conversations that Australia must have about education. And and as you heard tonight, we're going to look at... And, and talk about mathematics uh, education in school. I'm really privileged to have um, two wonderful people, uh, Nalini Joshi from Sydney Uni and Eddie Mr. Wood. Here, <laughs> 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 yeah, everybody knows um, uh, knows Eddie's work, and uh, we all all three of us we try to um, try to make this a conversation. And here's my story for you. My first job when I was still in um, in Helsinki, Finland, was uh, a high school mathematics teacher. So we are all mathematics teachers here. And this is what happened to me. I was a young, really passionate teacher in uh, one of the high schools in Finland. And I, I really took seriously, you know, te- teaching, you know, trying to help my students to understand and love mathematics. So this is what I did in each and every class before we did anything else. I asked them a question. How many of you like Mathematics. And these were 13-year-olds, just came from primary school, and I saw probably three or four hands. And then I asked this kind of a most important question, how many of you don't like mathematics? And there was always a handful or more kids there who said that they, not only that they don't like mathematics, but they hate maths. And I just couldn't understand why they said that. I said, how can you say that? Because we haven't done any mathematics yet. (laughs) Just wait for a week or two, and then you can have an opinion. I didn't, I didn't quite understand where these ideas came from. But there were so kind of a strong views that these kids have that it doesn't matter what I did, they didn't change their views. I did, you know, many of these things that Eddie was doing and, and Josie with the students here, but these kids just said, you know, mathematics is not for me. It's, it's not my thing, they said. Then one day, when I was really struggling with this problem, just by accident, I met a mathematics professor from England who became a really close friend of mine afterwards, and I sat down with him and I explained this. I said that, you know, there's something I don't understand at being a teacher of mathematics. Is that I always have these kids who tell me that they hate mathematics, they don't like math, and they say that mathematics is not my thing. What do you think is uh, behind this? And he was doing research that time on students' beliefs and ideas about mathematics and mathematical concepts and subject. So he told me that maybe, you know, there's something that these kids are thinking about when they think about mathematics that they don't like. And we had a long conversation, and as a result of the conversation, he said to me that, why don't you do this? That when you go back to your classroom with these kids, ask them, what do they think when they think about mathematics? Or even better yet, ask them, what do they see? What are the images that they have when they think about a mathematician at work? This is exactly what I did. I went back to my classroom, and every single classroom I did the same thing. I handed a blank sheet of paper to each of my students, and I gave them 10 minutes to draw a picture. Something that they saw when they were thinking about a mathematician at work. And after first class, I collected all these papers. You know, most kids did it, particularly those who told me that they hate mathematics. They were really actively kind of (laughs) drawing this image. And in this first class, I just piled these papers... And I continued teaching mathematics as usual. Then I went to the staff room, and I was kind of interested in seeing what these kids are drawing. So I laid down all these images, 25 of them, and I was shocked. I just couldn't believe what I saw. I had to do it again, the same thing. I went to the next class, I did the same activity, and another one, and another one, always the same thing. Do you know what was the one thing that was common in all of these classes with all of these kids 13, 14, 15-year-old, when they were drawing an image of a mathematician. One thing that was common to all of them. Mathematician was always a male. Every single one of them. And we never saw an image of a female mathematician. And, you know, we did this research in a number of countries. United States, England, Sweden, uh, Romania, Germany. So we had thousands of drawings, and they were all identical. And it was only then when I understood that, you know, if people, if these young people really have images like this, it's no wonder that they don't, you know, think about mathematics as a career. And it's no wonder that they don't like mathematics. I'm going to show you one image here. This is a kind of a, this is not just the kind of a selected thing for this particular evening. This is one of of those common images that we saw again and again and again. Just look at this. (laughs) So, this is a drawing from, I, I think, from England, of a 12 year old boy who did exactly the same thing. Okay? Look at this, this person over there. There's some interesting things like there's a food stain here. You know, mathemat- <laughs> mathematicians, they're so busy at thinking about mathematics that, you know, the food goes all over the place. <laughs> Their pants are too short. And they're broken because they're working on mathematics all the time. The, one of the interesting things is in the, the in the arm here, they're mathematical formulas because they do mathematics all the time. A lot of pencils in a pocket because you never know when the mathematics hits. So you have to be ready for that. <laughs> Tired eyes, unshaved. And, you know, the same guy gave us a little bit more information so that we really get the point. So he said that <laughs> mathematicians are not just... Male, but they're fat male. They're unstylish. (laughs) They have no friends except other mathematicians. (laughs) No romantic relationships or social life. You know what? I learned that mathematicians don't have children. (laughs) And they have wrinkles in their forehead because they think so hard, mathematics all the time, and very short tempers. Now, remember that this is not just a kind of a selected example for you. This is a very common image that many young people have when they think about a mathematician at work. So, you know, no wonder that we have a hard time, you know, teaching some of these kids mathematics if they think about the mathematician and mathematics this way. Now, this is my last question here. What do you think I did as a young teacher to, you know, address this issue? Because I found this this is one of those most important things I've ever learned as a teacher in my career, to understand the power of these self-made, self-constructed ideas and images and beliefs that young people have. What do you think I did to try to help kids to see the kind of a alternative to this? What would you do as a teacher to help these kids to see a kind of a much broader and diverse picture of what mathematicians do? Just
2: introduce them to lots of different kinds of methods.
1: Exactly. And you know the best thing I did? I brought in a female mathematicians. Stylish, <laughs> young, working on interesting things in a bank or insurance company or somewhere else. And guess what? Not all these kids changed the way they, they saw mathematics, but many of them did. I remember some, some of these reactions in a classroom when we had a conversation about mathematics with a female mathematician. That some of these students were saying, but she's a woman. And just think about it. And, and that's why, you know, one of these things that we really need to think, if you're a parent, or particularly if you're a teacher, to try to understand how powerful these ideas that young people have had on everything they do in a school. So this is the kind of a thing I want to leave with you. And now it's my huge privilege to give this floor to, to Eddie Wu to take us further in this beautiful world of mathematics. Thank you, Pasi.
3: It's a delightful introduction, thank you, Pazi, thank you, Shana. Uh, It is, like Pazi mentioned, such a joy to see so many of you here tonight, and I always wonder what kind of a conversation you have with your loved ones or friends before you come to an evening like tonight. You know, you, you go to a concert, like I'm there to hear music, or I go to see a comedian, I'm there to hear jokes. I'm going to go see three nerds? Like, what's, <laughs> what was going on in that conversation? Uh, but tonight, what I want to do to you is, in part, following on from what Paz has just mentioned and before Nalini gets to take the stage, something that the late Steve Jobs gave to Apple when he returned as its CEO. Do you remember, for those of you who are old enough in the room, that iconic marketing campaign? Two words. Do you remember what it was? Think different. What I'd like to do tonight is to try and help you think different about mathematics. And I want to try and even one-up that. Hopefully, I can help you feel different about mathematics. And Parsi's already laid the floor for us. Now, I think the best way to do that is actually to take a leaf out of my school, Cherrybrook Technology High School, where I still am delighted that I get to teach. One of the best things about it is that of our 135 teaching staff, more than half of them sit in one single big combined staff room. And it was when I first arrived at the school, I don't know how much of it was designed and how much was chance, but the mathematics faculty is right beside the creative and performing arts faculty. Ooh. Now, I found this fascinating. I don't know that the Kappa teachers found it fascinating, but I thought either, either someone has a really great idea in mind or they've thought, let's just hurt all the crazy people in one corner and I hope they don't. <laughs> cause trouble. What I want to try and do tonight is to help you think and feel different about mathematics through the lens of a particular artist. But I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. Maybe myself. Maybe you know which artists I'm already thinking of when you have a look at this image. But Before we get there, let's just address the elephant in the room. Pasi did mention this. We are standing, sitting, in this incredibly mathematical building. All buildings are mathematical, as our civil, environmental, engineering friends will tell you, but... I think the Sydney Opera House is particularly mathematical. And I wonder, as you were walking along the forecourt and up the monumental stairs, perhaps, as you looked at those iconic sails, if you thought to yourself, what is it about this design that makes it so striking, makes it so beautiful, makes it so ingenious? Now, there's some deep and wonderful mathematics in here. And I wonder if you realised that the sails which we admire which the whole world admires, are sections of a sphere. That's how they were constructed. The concrete foundry was out here on the forecourt. It could only make these sails because every one of the ribs was geometrically identical. it laboured for years to come up with this solution. Now, we could spend our whole evening talking about this building, but as I promised, I want to look through the eyes of this artist. Marietz Cornelius Escher, Dutch graphic artist from the 20th century. And I think he's perfect for us to explore tonight, to help us think different and feel different about mathematics because Escher, despite the kind of art that he made, never viewed himself as a mathematician or as mathematical in any way. I think he was one of the children that Parsi would have interviewed and said, no, mathematics, not for me. And Escher's son, George, recounted it in this way long after his father had passed away. He said, Father had difficulty comprehending that the working of his mind was akin to that of a mathematician. And he greatly enjoyed the interest in his work by mathematicians and scientists who readily understood him as he spoke in his pictures, in his art, a common language. Now, that sounds really wonderful and delightful. It is. That's why we're going to spend tonight over the next 15 minutes exploring what Escher could teach us about mathematics. But sadly, Escher never really experienced that himself. And I wonder if this resonates with your experience or perhaps the experience of your children as you see them go through and learn mathematics in school. For Escher the senior, unfortunately... The specialised language of mathematics hid from him the fact that mathematicians were struggling with the same concepts as he was. They were doing the same thing, but they didn't realise it at all. And that's what I want to try and unpack with you tonight. Three concepts that we're going to zip all the way through that Escher included in his art and that scientists and mathematicians down the centuries have wondered at, and I hope you will wonder at too. Infinity, perspective, space. Let's begin with infinity. We could talk about the universe, we could talk about the cosmos, but for Escher, what he was most fascinated about infinity was actually very close to home. You might recognise this. This is a beehive, of course. And the familiar pattern of hexagons that fills every beehive in the world is what we would call today, if you remember back to your Year 7 geometry a tessellation. Now, that word hadn't been invented in Escher's day, so he called them regular divisions of the plane. And he loved exploring these in his artwork. Now, my favourite one of Escher's works that explores regular divisions of the plane is where he pushed on the idea of these shapes that tiled his plane, if they changed just a teeny bit, these are the, uh, the flying fish that he put into Circle Limit 3, which is my favourite of his artworks. And as you have a look at them, what I want you to realise is how Escher ingeniously included infinity in the finite space of this circle. This artwork, it's inspired generations of artists and scientists down the ages. So much so that one day, a computer scientist decided, you know what, I know what's <laughs> going on here. This is actually not just geometry on a plane like Escher was envisioning and like he created in his artworks. This is actually geometry in something we call hyperbolic space. Now, I'm about to make this move, and I'm just going to give you a fair warning right now. If you're the kind of person who experiences motion sickness of any kind, now might be the moment to avert your eyes. But for the rest of you, I'm going to make this move for a minute. I just want you to think with me about how... This is moving. I want you to think different about mathematics when you see it in motion. Now as you watch, I wonder what's going on in your brain at the moment. As you see these fish flying around, as you see this image swirling and moving. It is swirling and moving, you're not imagining things, but I wonder if you realise that it's also not moving. Uh, For example, if you have a look at the big circle, the one that fills up most of the screen, the one that you saw in the artwork before, did you notice that big circle (coughs) isn't going anywhere? This is actually what scientists, quantum physicists, describe when they talk about moving through this strange hyperbolic space, which is what matter is like at its smallest scales. Okay, I'm going to stop that because otherwise you're going to get dizzy. You see, this is what infinity meant to Escher. It was art. It was design. It's mathematics. That wasn't the only idea that he explored. The second one that I wanted to tinker with with you is perspective. Now, uh, somewhat inspired by Otto, Pazzi's eight-year-old son, uh, I want to show you one of Escher's self-portraits. This is one of my favourite ones here. Escher did many self-portraits. This particular one, though, you need to look closely at it. It's a self-portrait of himself reflected in a silver ball that you can see there in the centre. And if we zoom in a little bit, Just wonder with me, if you would think about the perspective that Escher is giving us in this particular image. Uh, Firstly, don't weed yourself out, but you might notice in the reflection, you can actually see the entire artwork that Escher is drawing on the page. So the artwork that you're looking at is in the artwork that you're looking at. Don't think about it too hard. But then, I want you to cast your eyes back. Look behind Escher's head you can see the drawing room in which Escher spent so much of his time. Here's the particular thing I want you to focus on. Just have a look at the ceiling behind Escher's head. Can you see it there? Do you see the outlines of it? And there's like a a ceiling lamp hanging from it. And what amazes me is that, as far as I can tell from your little nods, all of you recognise that ceiling behind Escher's head. You recognise the geometry of the room behind him. Despite the fact that I'm guessing, the ceiling in your room in your home, in the classroom you teach, perhaps, looks nothing like this or like the one in the room we're standing in. Just look at how weird and curved it is. Do you see that? Of course it's curved because even though he's in a rectangular room, what you're looking at is what we call a projection onto a sphere. And if you have a look to um, our left, Escher's right, you can see that window uh, that faces out into nature. It's even more distorted and twisted because of the perspective that we have. Now, this artwork... I love this artwork so very much because if I do this right, I'll change the way you look at the world. It's a big call, isn't it? Let me see if I can do it. Here's the world. Uh, This is one of my favorite maps of the world because it's kind of composed of satellite imagery, so you can see all the different kinds of terrain. It's lovely. There's just one teeny problem with it this is not a map of the world. It's not at all. I wonder if any of you noticed it has some big, glaring problems with it. And I can highlight those problems if I show you a real map of the world. We know that's what the world actually looks like, roughly speaking. It is round. If you were to try and take the surface of this globe, cut it all out, and then lay it on a table, you wouldn't get that map that you saw before, would you? Uh, You'd get something like this. Now, this, of course, is much more accurate, just happens to be not very useful for actually navigating. Uh, I mean, I know Boris Johnson signed on to make Brexit happen, but somehow I do not think this is really what he meant. What we have, of course, is... Oh, you just got it. Okay, thank you. All right, Randall. <laughs> what we've got, of course, is something which is accurate, but completely dysfunctional right? We've got all these enormous gaps, because as we cut along the surface of the globe, as we near the North Pole and the South Pole, you can see those lines of longitude approaching each other and getting narrower. So these sort of SBS logo-looking shapes are called gores, G-O-R-E-S, okay? Now, how do we solve this problem? Because this will not do to navigate our world. Well, we take the map that we see, and we stretch it so that it fills the gaps. And that's how we create what you saw before, the Mercator projection. This is the most famous map projection around the world today. But now I wonder if you've realised, through doing that process of taking a real map and stretching it to fill the rectangle that we would like to print out nicely or display in our computer images, what the real problem with this map is. Did you remember the last time that they looked at a map and saw that Antarctica is the size of every other continent on the planet put together? Funny that or Greenland, up the top. The problem here, of course, is this massive distortion, the same distortion that we saw behind Escher's head in his drawing room. This map, this projection, this perspective on the world completely distorts the sizes of all of the different countries. This is a better representation of how big all of the different countries and land masses on the world are. And suddenly you think, oh, Canada's not so scary after all. Actually, it's not scary at all. It's a delightful place. But... Do you see what I mean by the fact that, in in fact, mathematics changes your perspective on the world? There are hundreds of different ways to look at our planet, and unknowingly, we almost all look at it through one particular one, the one we're familiar with. And this, I think, is a metaphor for how mathematics can help us understand the world around us. It gives us a lens for seeing the different perspectives. Perspectives, for me, (laughs) and for Esha, are something which can be confusing sometimes, but... I also think, at a time like today, when our world is so polarised and there are sometimes perspectives that seem like they're mutually contradictory, it's mathematics that helps us understand their unity. And Like I said, we're looking at this through the lens of art. It was Picasso who said, Art's not truth, it's a lie that helps us realise the truth. And I secretly wonder how much he was trading notes with statisticians who more or less say exactly the same thing. (laughs) So whether you're looking at something that's on a mathematical model, whether it's a logarithmic scale on infection rates for the pandemic that we live in now, or whether it's a political map, all models are wrong, but some are useful. So I promised three concepts, didn't I? Infinity, perspective, and space. I'm going to finish with this one that Escher gave us. This particular artwork is called Mobius. Uh, And some of you in the room will have heard of this kind of object before, a Mobius strip. And I want to show you why this is such an unusual object and why it does something so unusual to space. But I need a bit of a prop to help me. Uh, I have a strip of cardboard here that I have uh, affixed back to itself so it makes a loop. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to take this object by way of contrast, and I'm going to cut it In half. Now, before I do this, I just want you to make a prediction about what is going to be the result. I'm going to make an incision and I'm going to cut it lengthways. So hopefully you can see the angle. And I apologize to future listeners of this podcast who have no idea what's happening right now, but (laughs) do your best. I'm now going to start cutting and I'm going to go all the way around. My question to you is how many pieces will I get once I finish this cut? You can go in and tell me how many pieces. I'll get two, right? I love how Parsi you've made them doubt themselves about everything now. Two, I think. Two. Well done. You can breathe a sigh of relief. Now, this was just a regular old strip of cardboard, a hollow cylinder, as it were. That is not what you can see here in Escher's artwork. This is a Mobius strip, which is very much like that which you saw before with one difference. And maybe you can see it here, as you can with these ants crawling around. This is a bit twisted, isn't it? Uh, It's very precisely twisted, actually. There is a half twist, a 180-degree twist that I added to this piece of cardboard before I attached its ends. So now, I'm going to start cutting, and you're going to see why Escher loved the Möbius strip so very much. as I go towards the end, I'm going to ask you the same question that I asked before. And I know some of you know the answer, and that's fine. I don't mind you partly spoiling it, which is, once I get to the end... A trained professional would have had a shorter thing to cut, right? How many pieces will there be when I finish the cut? Now, trained audience, they know the answer is one. I mean, even when you know the answer, it's still a bit weird. But I promised that I would make you hopefully not only think different about mathematics, but feel different about mathematics. Escher opened a world to us but he only had a few finite years to explore that world with us, and you didn't know about this object. Uh, this is not a Möbius strip. It's ever so slightly different. I just added an extra twist to it. So I'm going to make this easier for you. I'm going to make this multiple choice. <laughs> I'm going to do the same operation that I did before, and I'm going to ask you the same question, which is, when I get to the end of cutting this strip, which has not one, but two half twists in it, one whole twist, if you like. Will there be, oh, here we go, one piece or two? Will there be one piece or two? Now, instead of doing this aloud, I'm going to take a, um, a leaf out of my, um, uh, my friend Dylan Williams' uh, book and ask you instead to vote with your hands. You can vote for one piece or you can vote... For two, And I'm going to ask you to raise your hand with your vote on it so that your friends around you can look and see. (laughs) (laughs) I'll give you a moment. Seriously, I've got all the time in the world. Okay, so I'm seeing lots of hands. Good, good. Okay, wonderful. Now, before I go ahead and complete the cut, I just want you to, especially if you're at the front half of the room, just look back. Have a look backwards, okay? Because... I want you to see, all right, thank you, hands down, okay. (coughs) Now, what's delightful about this? Let me tell you the good news. The good news is most of you are wrong. (laughs) And the reason why that's good news is because you're about to learn something. Uh, The question was, is there going to be one piece or two? And the answer is... The answer is yes. (laughs) Yes. I can admit, it was a bit cruel to not give you that as an option, but I hope you enjoyed it nonetheless. If only you can be the judge. Do you think different or feel different about mathematics when you look at it through the lens of art? I hope so. Thanks for your time.
4: APPLAUSE um. So, thank you so much, Pasi and Eddie, for involving me in this event. Um, this is going to be a change of rhythm, pace, and possibly emotions. So, Parsi asked me to talk about my story, my life. I'm kind of like one of those singular examples <laughs> that should have been put in front exactly. of year threes, I guess. Um, so, let me start from the very beginning, And I'm I'm going to try not to take too long, and I welcome any questions so that we have more of a a fruitful dialogue, perhaps, at the end, in the last part of this um, event. So where is the beginning? The beginning for me was that I was born in Burma, what we used to call Burma and is now called Myanmar. Both names are valid, by the way. It's, uh, they're synonyms of each other. So, I was born in the capital city at that time. That was Rangoon or Yangon, and my first language was either Hindi or Burmese. People seem to have a competition about that in, in the family stories. <laughs> but I certainly learned to read and write first in Burmese and count in Burmese, and I still do. I count in Burmese in my head whenever I have to do arithmetic, because it is the fastest way I know of counting. So. When I was very young, our lives changed because my father was conscripted into the Burmese army and we started living in, being posted to far-flung places in an area that was, I later learned, called the Golden Triangle. We lived on army bases in many different places and that region had a special name because it was full of conflict. It was the place where the opium warlords grew opium and fought with each other and exported it to the rest of the world. And I later learned also that at that time, it was the number one exporter of opium, which is the main ingredient in heroin, to the rest of the world. There had also been a coup very, very uh, recently before my father was conscripted. In fact, that was the reason why he was conscripted. I mean, I didn't know any of this at the time. So it was a time of conflict and a time of great worry for my parents. My father would be uh, on military m- excursions, sometimes weeks, sometimes months at a time. And my mother described it as the worst time of her life. But for me, as a child, it was possibly the best time of my life. Because what I learned was about freedom. Freedom to explore that wild countryside. Freedom to play to my heart's content. It was incredible. And what I learned, what I remember, for example, were all the games we used to play. This is a very familiar game to you, I hope, already. Um, That's hopscotch. Uh, And what I've drawn there are Burmese numbers. So they start at the bottom with one, and then two, three, four, five, and so on, in the usual pattern. What I'm trying to explain here is that what I remember of that freedom and that Immense ability to explore came in the form of these games. And what I remember is that these games led to number patterns. And that's where my first love of numbers grew from. I didn't know at the time that this was mathematics. What I saw were patterns that were not just the results of memorizing times tables, we didn't just recite. Uh, I mean, after you finish the hopscotch game, I, sh- I should explain, whoever finished the hopscotch first then had to do further things. They had to do a certain number of hops or skips or jumps. And those were determined by number patterns. And sometimes they would be things that came from times tables, but other times they were iterations of numbers like this. I didn't know at the time what this was, but perhaps you recognize it already. These are the numbers that start with one one, and then you get the next number by adding those two, and then you add one and two to get the next number, and two and three to get the next one, and then three and five to get the eight. And so if you add five and eight, you get 13, and so on and on and on. These are the Fibonacci numbers. What I wondered at the time was, with all of those counting patterns, whether numbers went on forever, whether all the patterns that we could create would go on forever forever. So let me give you a, a different story now. Think about uh, a number between one and, say, 100 in your head. Think about how to spell it in English. Now look at the count of the letters in that number. So, would somebody like to name a number? Four? Oh, that's. <laughs> you know the story already. <laughs> somebody else, please. Ten. Okay how many letters are there in 10? Three. three. How many letters are there in three? Five. How many letters are there in five? Four. How many letters are there in four? Four. So that's where you stop. And it, it's the same no matter which number you started with. Try it in your heads. Take 77 or um, 98 and try and spell out the the letters, add them up into numbers, and then what you'll see is that within about four or five steps, you end up with four. Four is the unique limit in this way of counting, and it's true for English. You can go beyond 100 if you wish, but you shouldn't add numbers, uh, conjunctions like and. Don't say uh, 110, just say 110, and then you'll find that the same pattern holds. But if you know other languages, you can try it out for yourself. You don't always get to a unique limit. In French, there are two. And I'll leave you to work out for yourself <laughs> what those two are. Portuguese is different again, and so on. So, I wanted to know more about number patterns, and I wanted to understand and explore them for myself. And so... I think this was my example again, so I'll just walk through it with you. 13 leads to 8, which leads to 5, which leads to 4, and so on. So, this is a picture of me when I was very young, entranced with number patterns and voracious for knowledge. Where my mother and my, my father were having these issues and problems, I was just devouring knowledge. I really, really need, needed to know things. I asked so many questions that I drove my parents mad. Um, so I became an avid reader to try and find out everything I could about everything in the world. But what I hadn't realised at that very young age was all of the difficulties that were happening to us. So one of the reasons my father was conscripted into the army was that we were not from a dominant ethnic background in Burma. We were from an Indian ethnic background, a bit of a mixture here and there. And after that first coup, the government decided that they didn't really want people like us in the country, and so they tried to expel us. Uh, People were put on boats, sent back to wherever without citizenship and so on. So we ended up deciding for many, many other reasons. My father told me later about some of them. Uh, For example, he told me that although I came top of every class that I had at school, I was never allowed to get the prizes at the end of the year because of our ethnicity. And so he wanted to go somewhere which was better for us. And I remember he brought an atlas home. We looked at the pages of all the other countries we could move to. And uh, we talked about, okay, all oh, right, this place had uh, tornadoes. Oh, my God, we don't even know what they are. <laughs> um, this place had really bad earthquakes. Another place, I think it was the UK at the time, oh, it had race riots. So it was really difficult to choose to go there. And then we asked, place with no earthquakes, no tornadoes, no race riots at the time, where could we go? Finland. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yes, we should have thought of Finland, um, and we chose Australia. So we came to Australia, and um, we ended up in Sydney. And so I started school in Australia, at primary school and then at high school. And what I wanted to do uh, was to just distill down three things that I think characterised the way I had to learn to learn And because I think that this is the way mathematicians think. Because mathematics is not just one language, it is an infinity of languages. And to be able to learn to speak it, to learn to think in it, you have to really listen very hard. What somebody might be saying about calculus and how it's interpreted in terms of algebra or in terms of geometry are quite different. And that's what makes mathematics a very rich domain. So listening was one big thing that I had to learn to do, primarily because I had to learn how to understand the Australian accent. And then working things out for myself because language wasn't enough. Instructions that I used to receive didn't quite make sense. I didn't know what it meant to be told not to borrow uh, books from the library. Um, The school I went to... um, had a junior library and a senior library. And if you were under a certain age, you were not allowed to borrow books from the, the senior library. So I read through everything in the junior library and I had no more books to read. So I went to the nonfiction section and thank God they had the classics of in- English literature in the nonfiction <laughs> section. So I could read, you know, the, the, the beautiful works of uh, Jane Austen, George Eliot, all of those people Charlotte Bronte, and so on. Apparently, my grant applications still sound like they're written by Victorian novelists. (laughs) Um, um, So, I had to work things out for myself in the face of instructions that didn't make sense to me and grab what I could of knowledge. And what I had to understand was that just because something didn't make sense, it didn't mean that you should stop thinking about it. So, let me give you... um, Some uh, examples, but before I get there, uh, I just wanted to mention that where I went to high school, at the start of my high school, was 4th Street Girls High, which is just over there on the Observatory Hill, or it used to be on Observatory Hill. And uh, one of the best things I had at that school was the maths teachers. Mr. Lester, in year nine, I think it was, third form, as we used to call it, allowed me to not stay at the same level as the rest of the class when we were doing mathematics. And I don't mean that I was allowed to accelerate. No, he allowed me to get behind. He allowed me the freedom to be always a chapter behind the others in class. Not because I couldn't do it, it was because I could explore things for myself. I could think about things in different ways and do them at my own pace. He could see that I could do things that that he wouldn't have any problems with me because I could explain things to other people. And he heard those explanations. But I could explore to my heart's content again. I started exploring more and more. I remember sitting on my parents' dining room floor with plates and saucers and cups, trying to work out things like, um, why is it that if the plate was the earth and the cup was the moon, that we only ever saw one face of the cup, because the plate had to move at the same rotational speed as the cup, as the cup went around the plate. I recommend you to try it out for yourself (laughs) at home, really. It's very (laughs) instructional. Um, And I became totally in love with the idea of astronomy and uh, science fiction and... um, I learned that the sun was going to be dying in about five billion years, so we all had to work towards saving the human race by finding, you know, another planet, habitable planet that we could go to, to save everybody's lives in the future. So I came to a point, there was a fork in the road, actually there were many forks in the road, because having survived the life that we did in Burma, my parents thought that to be safe, I should have a profession. And they wanted me to do medicine. I thought of medicine as plumbing of the human body, and there was no way I was going to do medicine. So I decided I would do science. Because, I mean, what could be more important than saving the human race from destruction when the sun decided to die? So I decided to do science at university. And I went and did a science degree, I realised that what I was hungering for in terms of knowledge was really mathematics. Because to understand what's out there, I really needed to know deeper and deeper and deeper mathematical ideas. So I then became so interested in mathematics that I decided to do a PhD and I went to Princeton, which is in New Jersey in the US. to do a PhD in applied mathematics Um, and then many other things happened. I got married in the middle of it, Uh, came back. Uh, I'm one of those human beings who does have a romantic relationship (laughs) even though (laughs) I'm a mathematician and then came back to Australia to start our careers together and I've worked at four different universities in Australia since then. So I want to just give you a tiny flavour of the kind of mathematics that I do. I don't have the time to give you all the details, so please forgive me for leaning on your imagination. So if you take a a piece of string and you hold one end and a friend of yours holds the other end and one of you stays still while the other whips it up and down, you're going to generate waves in the string. Those are one-dimensional waves. If you take instead a piece of paper and hold the edges, of the piece of paper and wave it, again, you're going to get waves, and those are going to be two-dimensional waves. If you do the up and down motion of the string or the wave too hard, or if the material out of which those are made are too delicate, you're going to break the string or the paper, and that's going to be a singularity in the wave motion. A singularity is something that is peculiar, not expected, something where... You might have motion that goes off to infinity, like planetary orbits sometimes do. Or they're going to be places where you can't determine what happens around this, mathematically speaking, in your model. It doesn't matter what the dimension of the piece of paper is, and it doesn't matter whether the piece of paper is a paper, or the ocean, or space-time, or, you know, uh, the, the, the distribution of people in an airport trying to board a plane or coming off a plane. We all seem to end up at the women's toilets, if you're a woman, <laughs> after a flight. That's another singularity we need to fix.
1: Um,
4: and so what I do is I capture singularities, and how you go past them, how the waves or the motion of the model or the future of what happens in the model goes around the singularities. I predict how many singularities there might be and I look for behaviour that happens far away in time or far away in space. That's the mathematics that I do. And you might be wondering what kind of singularities could happen. Well, there are many examples of that. That's the light from a galaxy moving past a background that contains a black hole. And you can see that the distortion of the light is coming from the distortion of the space-time or the piece of paper that that galaxy is moving across into. What I do is I take the singularity, I remove it. Each time you have a singularity, you put a new dimension on. And so you build more and more mathematical structures to try and understand what happens as you go through it. And I end up with pictures like these. This is a projection of an eight-dimensional polytope, a convex polygon in eight dimensions, um, projected down to two. And that gives you information about how you survive on a piece of paper with singularities.
1: Thank you. Okay, wonderful. Thank you so much, colleagues. Uh, now let's, um, let's talk. And let me start with the, with the question um, and very brief comments from both of you, and then, then I'm inviting you to join the conversation here. Um, you know, first of all, when, when I listen to your, your stories and, and, and watch you presenting these things, I think... You know, these things you can only see from people who are mathematicians, who are kind of a deeply engaged in understanding not only mathematics, but how, how to think mathematically. And, and that's um, kind of a lead to this question. Now, think about this. If you are today, if you are a child, if you a child, not your child, but any child in, uh, in Australia, what is the probability that this child will have an unqualified or out-of-field teacher, at least for one year in the years 7 to 10 in high school. So what is the probability that a, a child will have an unqualified teacher at least for a year in high school, the first four years of high school? It's about 76%. Just think about it. And it's average. You know, if this child happens to live in a remote and rural part of this country, go to public school, it's probably close to 100. Or... If we're talking about primary school kids, and we ask the same, same question, that what is the likelihood that a child will have somebody teaching mathematics in a primary school who has not been prepared to teach mathematics is close to 100%. Now, this is a kind of an opening question for this conversation to both of you, and I invite you to give a brief response to this, what, what your thoughts are. Is, is this a, do we have a crisis in school mathematics here in Australia because of this?
3: I feel as though I should do what mathematicians would normally do at the beginning of a problem, being set and say, define crisis. Um, <laughs> okay. But if, if I were to provide my own definition, which is you know, a situation which requires drastic and immediate action, then I think the answer is patently yes. Um, that 76% number is horrifying to me, mainly because I know the people who are in that 76% as students. And I also know the people who are on the other side of that, doing the very best without adequate support, teaching a subject that they are not well-prepared to teach. And that's not easy. We depend as a system upon those people. And what an immense thing we ask of them, if you'd ask me to teach Spanish, or I actually, you know, this tells you how much desperate times call for desperate measures. I taught four periods a cycle of P in my first year of teaching. They were really desperate back there. But I guess, you know, that speaks to, when you say crisis, it only takes a year. Actually, it takes much less than a year of not being able to fit together those really important mathematical building blocks to have that continuum of understanding that we need for children once they get to 16, 17. All those pieces, that foundation needs to be there.
1: So I think crisis is a pretty fitting word. What do you say, Nalini, from the uh, university perspective?
4: I think uh, a crisis usually means that there is a very short time in which it has come to this edge. But actually, we've been talking about it for decades, and I see it more as a slow car wreck happening in front of us. And we've been talking about it for a while. The problem is that there are many problems. Um, I think in addition to the issue of discipline, knowledge and confidence by teachers, there might be other factors that we have to consider and we can go on and talk about those too.
1: Right, right. Fortunately, people have a right answer to this question because I posted in a Twitter this morning and social media knows everything. So according to social media... The fact is that 80% of Australian people think that we have a crisis in mathematics. The sample size is rather small. I have 24 people answering. <laughs> <laughs> but if you're not a mathematician, you don't probably care about that. What's what the a, selection it's, bias it's, in followers
3: it's, it's, of Paddy Salberg,
1: I wonder? It's a, uh. it's a fact. Actually, I'm going to write a paper out of this. Uh, <laughs> but now, people, now it's, it's, it's your turn. We have some students, young people here. I would very much like to hear what your thoughts are you know, how to move forward, I I, I, I definitely want to have a kind of an uplifting end into this conversation so that we would not just, uh, you, you know, underline the problems and issues and say how bad things are because we have so many positive things here in Australia in our schools and wonderful schools and teachers doing amazing things. But how do we move forward with the mathematics to make sure that we have more people who would find this beauty and understand the importance of maths? But let's open this for the uh, for the conversation. Now, what we need to do is that you, you you need to speak loudly so that we can hear, because this is gonna be recorded as well. So if you if I can ask you to stand up and and introduce yourself very briefly and then speak, please. Uh, my name's
2: Robert Gardner Garden by an admission, I'm a husband. The question is are there other uh, education systems elsewhere in the world where that statistic would be very
3: low? Yeah, so the who's doing it.
1: Yeah okay so the question is are there other education systems in the world where this uh, probability would be much lower Eddie do you do you have
3: I could speak to that briefly um I'm by no means an expert on every global education system out there, but I happen to know one system that I visited in the recent past, um, Singapore, which doesn't do everything perfectly, but when it comes to this particular problem, um, I actually travelled to Singapore a few years ago as part of a study tour with 10, 11 other Australian teachers, and when we realised language of instruction is in English the systemic support for teachers and for development professionally is very different from what it is in Australia, I'll let you judge whether it's in an upward or downward (laughs) direction, Um, we thought to ourselves, wouldn't it be amazing for all of us to teach here rather than in Australia? And we all laughed and realised everyone in the group could get a job in Singapore Except me, because there's an oversupply of science and mathematics teachers <laughs> in Singapore. Um, and in fact, because, again, the is very different, um, as soon as you stick up your head and say, I would like to become a science or mathematics teacher, the National Institute for Education, which is the one educational uh, initial teacher education body in Singapore, says, thank you, Parsi, you might be a great mathematics teacher in Finland, but we don't need your skills here. Yeah. So they've certainly that. done their workforce planning very differently. Yeah to the way we do things here in Australia yeah. and most of the Western world?
1: Nalini, I'm not going to let you answer because you can do pillow talk uh, <laughs> about this. If you, if you, if you want to join the conversation, please do. But, uh, but you, just, just to continue from from Eddie's view, uh, you, you know, th- this is all about workforce planning. And, you, you know, the, the country that I know probably better than any other place is Finland, of course. You know, I would, I would assume that if you ask the same question in the Finnish context, uh, that is a very different in many other ways, you would have much, much lower uh, proposals. Probably something like 5 to 10 percent. M- most, most of the teachers are qualified. And I, I think the issue is really that, you know, how much the government is, is uh, you know, managing the w- workforce and, and training of teachers, uh, which is a very different thing here than it is in many other countries. But, you know, Finland is not the only place where this has been handled in, a, in a very different ways. And and that's why, you know, somebody was calling a kind of a, I think you said, Eddie, that there's a kind of a need for urgent action to do something. This is one of the first things I think that we should be finally put forward because you said, Nalini, that this is not the new problem. This has been here for 20, 25 years already, that we need to do something to the the fact that we need more qualified teachers somehow, either by retraining those who are now unqualified or then just... uh, you know, try to find a way how we can have more young people choosing uh, mathematics and science as a as a kind of a field of of teaching. But you know, that's why I think this is so important. What these colleagues have been saying is that you know, un- unless we change the way we we introduce and offer mathematics in, a, in a, starting from primary school and and preschool, you know, these people. If I'm correct with this idea of, you know, having these very weird images of uh, mathematicians, you know, they're not going to go there. Mm. It doesn't matter what we do because, you know, if if the kids can can if they can choose what they do, they're not going to do mathematics or science.
4: Yes, I can tell you lots and lots of anecdotes. Um, (laughs) When I went to my daughter's primary school teacher and I said, I'd love to help in the classroom, she said, oh, you know, parents have a very hard time with mathematics, you might find that it's harder than you thought. <laughs> did you say, do you
3: know who I am? No,
4: no, no, I didn't. But I did make a very bad mistake, which is I said to her, no, 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 I'll be fine. And since she still looked doubtful, I gave her my business card. She looked at it and never talked to me again. <laughs> never. Ah, oh, That was a bad mistake on my part. Because I didn't want to intimidate her. Um, I wasn't trying to talk down to her, but I think it, what it showed was that primary school teachers have very little self-confidence in this area.
2: How well do you think the curriculum as it stands and it addresses those issues and does it provide the support for
1: teachers to do that? Mm-hmm. So how, how well the curriculum supports teachers to be confident in what they do? Um, this is for both of you. Go, go Edith, go first.
3: I'll, I'll make a start. Those are... On. Those are fighting words, Josh, and um, <laughs> which I appreciate, by the way. And it's, I think it's delightful that you pose that question because, of course, this is one of those situations I think, as Nalini mentioned, this is a very multifaceted problem. I think in the, in the lingo, they call it a wicked problem. If a simple solution existed, we would have found it already. Um, and the metaphor I have in my head is that in terms of, we've talked about... Um, teacher supply, we've talked about uh, student mindsets toward mathematicians and mathematics, and then we can talk about curriculum design. And it feels to me very much that when you think of each different problem, and we could list more, of course, uh, we need to put all our oars in the water at the same time. Otherwise, maybe pushing the metaphor slightly too far, we just end up going in circles. So to come to the idea of the curriculum, I mean, I will just say, right from the outset, and this is not just because I'm an employee of the New South Wales Department of Education, <laughs> 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 but...
1: This is a recorded... Edition. Yeah, right.
3: <laughs> for its shortcomings, and I'll talk about them in a second, and I know Nalini will experience this from the honest students who she teaches um, are the output, I guess, of this curriculum. Um, for its shortcomings, I really love teaching... And this is my uh, 13th, 14th year teaching this syllabus, which has more or less stayed uh, quite consistent all the way through... I love the fact that the first sentence in the rationale of our mathematics syllabus says, mathematics is a reasoning and creative activity. That's sentence one. Um, And that every every part of the syllabus is meant to be a theatre, a context in which to explore reasoning and creativity in thinking. I hope we adequately demonstrated that tonight. But a document which has these principles underneath it and this intent behind it obviously is very different to an embodied teaching and learning of that same syllabus. Uh, Sure, there are some things that we could tighten up and change, and I put lots of submissions into our last round of curriculum consultation to say, I'd love this to be different. But in the end, you know, it's a complex beast that uh, parents and industry and universities and academics and students themselves sometimes all have fairly... Uh, divergent views on what we'd like the syllabus to be. It's going to be a compromise of some kind. What matters is, what do we do with that compromise? Can we do something effective with it? Right.
1: Nalini, you, you often speak about the beauty of mathematics. Do you think that the, the current uh, school curriculum or teaching how, how mathematics uh, is offered to students is allowing them to kind of discover this beauty of
4: mathematics? Unfortunately, not all teachers are Eddie Wu.
3: I was going to say, thank God, they're not.
4: (laughs) (laughs) And there is, in my limited knowledge of the school curriculum, uh, the main thing I heard from teachers was most of the teachers I've talked to in the past is that it is very, very full. It's very crowded. Um, underneath each subheading there are dot points and the teachers feel like they have to cover each of those dot points in everything they're teaching and there's not enough time or room in the year to do this effectively. So what Mr. Lester did with me is not possible in that curriculum structure. You can't let students just explore for themselves. There's no time to do it, unfortunately. Right, right. Mm. Okay, we
1: have time for one or maybe two uh, comments or questions. Who would like to call? Yes, please.
2: Um, so I've got a bit of a weird kind of uh, growing up. So I studied pure mathematics, then I moved into architecture and design, and I found myself teaching it for quite some time. And you end up with a whole bunch of the kids that hate mathematics, right? Because like, mm-hmm. it's all like, well, I did hand drawing, and it's like maths is dumb. So it's, it's kind of really frustrating. But then they realize that it's really useful, and they want to get into computational design. Like, can get a computer to do things for them. So you, you have these students that, like, um, ignore all mathematics for, for, like, English and the arts. And then you realise that actually first-order logic and proof theory are things that are, like, really similar to the stuff that they're doing in English. But that connection isn't there. And I'm wondering, um, just through my own experience... Why has the curriculum come to be the way it is? Mm. That these kind of possible collaborations between English and the, and the things that the students that hate mathematics actually quite like most of the time aren't being explored.
0: Mm. Mm.
1: Did you, you all heard about the question? Yeah, OK. So why the curriculum is what it is?
3: What was your name, sorry? Matthew. Matthew, let's have a conversation afterwards, but I will say, number one, you'll be delighted to hear that actually, first-order proof theory has finally made its way, actually, into the high school syllabus, which is worth a clap until you realise, only for Mathematics Extension 2 students in New South Wales, which is a vanishingly small, it's about 4,000 students every year, Um, I suppose the shortest answer is, everything in the syllabus is somebody's baby. And so to introduce something like that, or say to introduce statistics, which is finally in the big stage six calculus courses for 11, 12, something else had to go, like
1: deductive geometry, shed a tear. So
3: there's more depth and nuance to that, uh, but there's a bit of a short answer for you.
1: So things are getting better in this way? I think so. Good. Malini?
4: It's a curriculum designed by committee. A lot of what we have right now came about because the government decided that we needed to have a national unified system of subject matters um, and so they designed the curriculum to have uniformity but it was designed by committee and I'm sorry it just never worked properly in my opinion but I, I, am a, I have limited knowledge because I'm not a school teacher.
1: But the change is coming because we heard <laughs> all right. One more thing. We have a few more minutes. Who would like to have a last Last word.
2: Hi, everyone. Um, I'm Alana. Um, I actually work at the Opera House. Um, so I guess I'm really interested now in... As a, am a visual arts educator, so thank you for the MC Escher um, <laughs> uh, example. How can industry and cultural institutions and other organisations help support educators mm. in this space to sort of alleviate some of those problems or to help highlight or provide... Additional resource to support, um, you know, teacher professional learning, or or starting to sort of make some of those cross-curricular links that can maybe enable some advocacy or change in that
1: space. Wonderful. I think this is a great uh, last question. How do we help uh, help teachers to do more of what we have heard here?
3: I'll give you I'll give you two answers: um, a philosophical one and a pragmatic one. Uh, The first one is, I'm just delighted, thank you for saying that, like yes, the clap was totally warranted, because um, we have to partner on this together, and it's a sad reality that I've seen over the course of my short career, um, just how much, I mean, not to put too fine a point in it, but there are some recent terrible things in Australian politics that have really put a spotlight on, for example, um, the way that we educate our young men in this society. Who's to blame? I don't even need to finish that sentence, do I? Schools will be the solution. And of course, schools have a huge and central role to play in there. But to then say, let us place this burden, which it's... okay, I get it. It's a gateway for every young person through society. So it's a natural place to go to try and solve those problems. Um, So thank you. Uh, Come and talk to me afterwards. There's my philosophical solution. My pragmatic solution is, on the basis of that philosophical response, teachers are probably some of the time poorest people on the planet. Um, And I know people at the Sydney Opera House, you understand what it's like even having an empty building and yet feeling busier than ever. And that's exactly what our lives were like as we went down on like two days notice into lockdown teaching. All the educators in the room know what that feeling was like and just how grueling that was. And so that means that what industry and what universities and what families and society bring to schools has to be something that can be ready to be used and is power that we can unlock for our students. That gets me excited as an educator. But I know that when there are things which I think that'd be cool, but it's just going to be too low on my priorities, it doesn't happen. It doesn't make it to our precious students. So that's what I would implore.
1: It's very, very important. The average working week of teachers here in New South Wales is 55 hours. It's absolutely true what you said. Last uh, comment, Nalini. Anything you want to add to this uh, supporting, helping teachers? How do we move forward?
4: I think we should have mathematical excursions where <laughs> students go and look at art to recognise the mathematics that's imbued in all of it.
1: All right. And th- this is exactly what the Sydney Opera House is doing so nicely and the... The Centre of Creativity will do even more, provide more opportunities for people to come and, and look at the world as it is, including mathematics and arts and music and, and even opera. So, uh, with this all said, first of all, I want to really thank my colleagues Nalini and, and Eddie here and um, thank you once again, everyone. Thank you.
0: <clears throat> that was Parsi Salberg speaking with Eddie Wu and Professor Nalani Joshi. In the next episode, Professor Seilberg talks with Barkanjin Nyampa Woman and Executive Principal of Menindee Central School Fiona Kelly and Dr Chris Sara, founder of the Stronger Smarter Institute, about some inspiring First Nations education stories. Thanks for listening to Ideas at the House.